I want you to open to two passages of Scripture, one we'll deal with for a while, one we just want to start with, and we'll start with Joshua chapter 24, very familiar, verse 15. And then we'll go to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. I talk a lot about choices. I've said many times in my life that we live by choices. That faith itself is a choice you make to count on God to do what he said. I think the faith life is as simple as that. It's a willingness on a man or a woman's part to count on God to do what he said. You can't do more but you can do less, because if you don't want to do that, well, there are consequences. Now, the title of the message today is The Choice is Yours, because every individual is gifted with a choice, volition, we call it. Nobody can have a will for you. That is, you have your own will. Your life is determined by your will and by your choices. Now, God will tell you what you ought to choose, the way you ought to go. He doesn't make you do that. It's your choice. All the turns in your life are choices you've made. Where you are this morning, you are because of the choices you've made in your life. Now, in Joshua 24 and verse 15, Joshua said, And if it seem evil... That means if it's displeasing to you or if you're unwilling, you don't want to really do it this way. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose you this day whom you will serve. It's a choice you have to make. He brings them to the very brink of the promised land. Think of it. We are there. It is right before us. Clear as a bell. And as we go over there, he said, the one supreme thing you have to realize is that you have to make a choice whom you will serve. You will either serve God who brought you here by signs and wonders and miracles. Or when you get over there, you'll get distracted. You begin to look around and see things that you like to see, maybe forbidden, but you'll learn how to make excuses and reason within yourself why it's not such a bad deal. And you begin to do other things. But choose what you're going to do. Make a choice. Whether you serve God or whether you serve the world, its ways, or your own desires and dreams. It's your choice. Now, all choices have consequences, as I said a while ago. Every way you choose, every choice you make has a consequence. When you choose God, you choose good. When you choose God, you choose favor. You have promises that God makes to those who makes the right choices. But to those who, for whatever reason, whatever excuse, whatever they say, they don't want to do it his way, there are consequences. One of the consequences was described in 1 Kings chapter 9 when the desolation of Israel came because of bad choices. 
And God said, and the people will come by, they'll walk by this land that had been known for his gloriousness, for the God of all the earth who protected and provided water and food and everything was rich and good. And the people will walk by, and the Bible said they will be astonished. I mean, they'll look at something and say, as we would probably say it today, my goodness, what happened? How could all of this be? I thought these were God's people. How can all of this be? And in Kings, he writes, this is how they shall answer those people who say, what happened? Why is this going on? Why? Why all of a sudden was something so good and then it just caved in? Why was somebody's life once so promising? Well, they were so zealous and they started well. They had their hands on the plow. It looked like everything was going good. And then next time I saw them, they were drinking and divorced and and tore up and dirty. And what happened? That doesn't just happen. You have to make a choice that invites that into your life. And he said, and they shall answer because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them, and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. Let me ask you a question. Could all of that evil have been avoided? It's not like you have to have evil in this life to be normal. Your life does not have to fall apart in order for you to be normal. Because you look around and it seems like so many people that you know either have or are about to fall apart. You look at young people. You try to say, don't go, don't go that way, don't go, don't do that. And they're oh, no, I'm fine, man, I'm bulletproof. And off they go. And you know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. You know what kind of disappointments and desolations Lie before them. Sometimes it's overwhelming. They never recover. They live a hateful, disoriented, dysfunctional life the rest of their life. And you can't do anything with them. But it's the result of choices. You made some bad ones. And you didn't recover. Now, some do. Thank God that they do. Some of you are here. I'm here. I made some bad choices in my life. But love lifted me. I was rescued, and praise God. But a lot of people don't. But what I'm saying is this is the result of choices. Now go to Second Chronicles chapter 15. Now in Second Chronicles 15, Asa has just returned from a battle. He faced a million soldiers. That's quite an army to face. A million And in this battle with these Ethiopians and the Lubims and the others, whoever these warring nations were that came against Israel, Asa just prayed. He said, God, we have no might against these people. We can't just go out there with our smallish army and beat those people. But Lord, help us. And he did. And they gained in chapter 14, they gained a mighty victory. Now, we come to chapter 15. Asa is returning from the victory And a prophet comes to meet him. Now, a prophet is a messenger with a message. Amen. Amen. 
prophets are messengers with messages, something from the Lord which has a design and a purpose to do something or to fix something. So here they come. Here comes a prophet, Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa, and he said unto him, he said, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah, and all of Benjamin. And then these words, The Lord is with you while you be with him, and if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now, is that fair? Well, it has to be fair because that's the word of the Lord. Let me read it again. Asa, the Lord is with you all the time and all the while you're with him. And if you seek him, you will find him. Now, I could read between the lines and say that you find God, you find life. You find everything that is sensible and right when you find God. He's there. You have to seek him to find him. He doesn't just appear in your life as who he is because you joined church or got saved. Oh, but now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. Don't we have a problem? Maybe this is Old Testament. You seek him, you'll find him. Or he's with you while you be with him. Wait a minute. He's always with us now in the New Testament. So I don't really have to seek him to find him because he's found me and he is in me. And therefore, the seeking part is over. Huh. Is that right? Well, now let me remind you then if you're arguing with me this morning. I don't mind arguing a little bit as long as I'm doing it on my own. (laughs) James chapter 4 and verse 8. It says, submit yourselves unto God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now the word submit means to be subject to. It's used with us in the government. Submit yourself to the higher powers. Be subject to the laws of the land. Or as you use a husband and his wife. As wives, be subject to your own husbands as unto the Lord. He's not superior to you. He's not better than you. He's not smarter than you. Any more than a general is a better individual or smarter than some private. But the word submit is a military word. It has to do with rank and so forth. You honor a rank. And in honor of that rank, I subject myself to the way it works. But you see, now, the Bible teaches us in Romans 8, verse 6, a man that is carnal, or the carnal mind, the mind that doesn't think spiritual. The carnal, the foolish, the fleshly mind is not subject to God. The Bible says, neither can it be. But on the other hand, he said, the carnal mind is an enemy of God. When it hears the word of God, when it hears the way that God wants us to live, it wants to argue. Well, that doesn't make sense. And it wants to, yeah, blah, 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 blah. It wants to convince itself in its own carnality that I don't need that. That's not necessarily what I need. There are religious people who need all of that, but I don't need that. Because I'm pretty capable and able to make it through life without all that religious stuff. That's a choice. That person just made a choice. He exalted himself in the place of being his own God. He can do it by himself. He doesn't need anything. And as long as his mind stays in that kind of a place, 
He will resist God the rest of his or her life. He'll attend church. He could be a preacher. But he's made up his mind that he will go as far as seems reasonable and sensible to him to go. And all this other stuff, is, you know, that just doesn't make sense. He's a God unto himself. And he's an enemy of God. He doesn't fall dead while you're talking to him. He's maybe not broke. He's not sick. But he's an enemy of God. He's made some bad choices. God allows him to exist. But the Bible says... Be subject to God. That's for Christians. It must mean that not all believers are just automatically submissive to God. Have you ever known Christians who weren't? I have. Have you ever been unsubmissive to God? Good. And then this verse 8 of James chapter 4, it says, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Well, if we're already, all that nigh stuff is already drawn. If he's in me and I don't need to be, then why would he write that? Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Does that still work for Christians? Now that you're a Christian, now that you've asked God to save you, now that you're here, is there any more of a need for you to draw nigh to God? Do you even as a Christian need to seek God? I'm telling you something in doing a little looking back and forth and a little stuff. There are people who don't believe you have to do any of this. You don't have to seek God now that you're a Christian. You don't have to draw nigh to God. I don't even guess you have to submit to God. You can pretty much do what you want to do any way you want to do it, and you're all right. You see, I don't believe the person ever had a change of heart. Because I believe that when God changes, you see your constant need. I need thee. I need thee every hour because now that I'm beginning to walk with the Lord and approaching him and seeking his way, there's so much of it. You can't get it all at once. So the little as I get it, I think, boy, that's going, Lord, help me. Do we need to do that? Of course we do. So back to second Chronicles where we were. He said, Asa, the Lord is with you while you are with him. Now, let me ask you a question. If Asa turns away from God, will God turn away from him? Did he say he would? If he said he would, then you can say amen. If you seek God, if you earnestly seek God, yearn for him, as a deer panteth after the water. If you with all your desires seek after God and his will and his way, will he show it to you? He said he would. But he said also, if you turn from him, he will turn from you. Now, a biblical fact that has been historically demonstrated down through the ages is that God urges us, compels us to seek him. It's like I bring you to me. I have brought you to me. I've broken your hearts. I've turned you around. I've manifested enough of me to you that you know now who I am. And I've turned you now to me. And now you realize you don't know much about me, God would say. You know very little of me. What you know about me is a Sunday school description or walking on the water or 
the manger or something like that. But as far as who I am in your daily walk, in your environment, with your circumstances, and what I can do and how I can do it, and the assurance that you can have that I'll do all of this, you don't know much about that. In fact, the more you begin to seek God, the more you begin to realize you're full of doubt. You are full of doubt and unbelief. But when God makes a a wonderful promise, you find yourself going, well, you know, I, I don't know about that. Why don't you know about that? I mean, that's what he said. Yeah, I know that's what the Bible said, but wait a minute. Look at all the people in history that that didn't work for. And I come up and say, will you judge God and his honesty by other people? Will you tell me that God doesn't do what he says because you didn't see any evidence in all these other people? What if he just did it for one person you don't even know of? Let God be true and every man a liar. Don't seek him and hold him to the year 2014 realities. God is God forever. What he has said that he is and what he said that he does, he has done forever. And his desire is for you to draw near to him so that he can show himself to you. Didn't Jesus say that's possible? He said, he that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be drawn unto me. And I will disclose myself to him. The Father and I will reveal ourselves to him. What happens to a person's life who begins to see God? You won't catch him in some old honky-tonk jive down there wiggling and dancing. Boy, life has a deeper purpose than pleasure. There's something greater than that now. Something that satisfies the longing, the deeper longing and earnest yearnings of a soul. God has made his appearance in your life. Your life changes. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. And do what? And learn of me. For you'll find that I am meek and lowly in heart. Those are things that I reward in your life. They are things that God rewarded in my life. I was pliable in the Father's hands. I came to do the Father's will. And the more I draw near to him, the more he overwhelmingly blesses me and keeps me. In the face of danger, death, and blood and tears, he's there. He's there. And so, Asa begins to realize that as he seeks, he'll find. Now, the prophet went on to say things like, for a long season, Israel had been without a teaching priest and without law. Now, we know that the priest did teach then, because in the chapter 17, Jehoshaphat, Asa's son, sent the teaching priest out to teach in all of Israel. But there was a time they didn't have that. There was a time there was a lot of darkness. But he said in verse 4, even in those dark times in the history of the country, this is encouraging for us. Even when nothing has worked right in your life, God says, when they sought me, when they in earnest opened their heart to me, he said they found me. And when they found God, they were rescued. Everything... Turned around and they were delivered from all these things that, well, astonished so many people. 
He said, in those times, there was no peace to him that came in or went out, but great vexations upon countries, countries all around Israel that had forsaken the Lord. In fact, God told his people when they came to the what we call the promised land, which is no longer called the promised land today because we might offend a Muslim. Well, it is the promised land. It still is. It is the land of promise that is being inhabited by a people who were once no people. They became a people and they scatter all over the world and now they're back a people again. It's a sign of the end times, of the last days. That is a sign. And all these people have come back. And they are there. And God said that he would bring them back. But he said, I'm giving you the land of these Hittites, Havites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanite. I'm giving you all of these people's land, all these tribes that live in, in what is today called Israel. I'm giving you their land because they have become an abomination. They're loathsome to me. The things that they do, they kill their children. They pass them through the fire. They sacrifice the devils. And all these idols that fill the land, they take a tree. They cut a tree down. It's cold out, so start a fire with those limbs and, and they cut some wood out of this thing. But save the rest of it, we're going to make us an idol. And set the thing up, paint it, maybe put a diamond in his eyes or something. Put a ruby in his nose or something like that. Oh, 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 and they bow to the thing. But that's a choice they made. They learned that from the inhabitants of the land that God gave to them. They let just enough of them remain that they taught them how to worship idols. And God came to the end when he said to Israel, finally said, you have become worse than the people whose land you inhabited. You are worse than they are. You're more of an abomination in my eyes than they are. So he scattered them. And you read the history, if you took the time to read of the punishment and the agony and the terrible, tragic breaking down of human lives and families, a nation, and the suffering and the anguish and the grief for years and years and years these people went through, you would have to cry out, is that fair? Is that fair? Doesn't God even care? I mean, we look at that and we say, that's not fair. Well, doesn't God care? I mean, look in America, look in Shelby County, maybe. And you see things that, man, that is awful. Doesn't God care? And we don't know what God knows. We don't know what kind of choices people in their lives have made. But I'll tell you this, God is never unfair and unjust, never. God is always fair and righteous. He requires the same thing of us. But these people, he talks about in the Bible, they have been trained and encouraged to seek God. Even when things are bad, when the sun doesn't come up anymore in your life, when sorrow has turned to anguish and there's no hope, seek the Lord. Come to me. Turn to me. 
Your mind, because it's been trained by the devil, says, well, that won't work. You've tried that. No, you've never tried that. You followed a little Sunday school filling the dots. You drew a picture and thought you were trying. No, when you seek God, it's like a shutdown of your life. Everything stops. There's nothing now more important. That's why people fast. I don't want to eat. I don't want to be interfered with digestion or anything. I want to get a hold of and find the will of and relief from God. If God does not rescue me, there is absolutely no hope for the rest of my life anywhere in the world with anything that exists. It is desolation. The only hope is God. That's when you press in. That's when you seek God with all your heart. You want it more than anything else. It's not a Sunday morning, Wednesday night transaction. You can be inspired. You can read your Bible every day and be inspired. I'm currently reading through Second Chronicles. About done with it. You know, I read these things, and I think there are 2,317,000 sermons in Second Chronicles. Just about how man is before God. He doesn't get it. When he crawls out of a hole and, and God rescues him, oh, thank you, Lord, and give him enough time, and he'll go back in that hole. You think, what is wrong with man? It's simple. He doesn't submit himself to God. He likes his pleasure. He likes his little gods. He likes the little things that distract him. He likes feelings. There's an explosion of sex in this world that seemed, oh, that's the ultimate. And people that have gone there, it's not. Oh, now there's sex drugs for men. And now they're having heart attacks and strokes and, and other things that are not going to get cured. That was good, wasn't it? Why didn't you turn to the Lord? Why didn't you seek the Lord? Well, you know, he might not. Want. Why don't you trust him? Well, yourself. Isn't he big enough, good enough? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he care? Oh, no, you set him aside. You went another way. And the consequences of your choice may cost you your life. It wasn't a good choice, was it? It wasn't God's fault. He simply said, come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Come to me. I'm your source. Eh, eh. Eh, it's like a bunch of sheep. Eh. <laughs> you can read your Bible and just wander away from God. They just keep wandering away from God. He brings them back and they wander away and he brings them back again. He didn't have to. He cares about them much more than they care for him. He cares for them. They wander away. Like Proverbs says, the way of a fool... Let me modify that just a little bit for the Sunday morning crowd. The way of a foolish person is right in his own eyes. He's his own little God. But he said, at the end of that verse says, But he that hearkeneth unto wise counsel, or to God's counsel, is wise. He that hearkeneth, 
He that payeth attentioneth to God's counsel is wise. Now, I don't know how wise any of you are. I know how wise I want to be. But my wisdom will never be attained anywhere else except God. And if I want the wisdom that God gives, then I'll have to go to God to get it. But when man disregards God, Christians are historically guilty. They've heard all the Bible stories. They probably had good preachers that explained what the stories were about. Why bad happened? Why bad things happened? And yet, it did not influence their choices in the things that they did that God himself has to judge. Turn to Solomon chapter 7. This book, chapter 7. Like I said, I've been in this book for a while. I'm getting familiar with it. Chapter 7 and verse 17. He's speaking to Solomon. He said, And as for thee, if you will walk before me as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shall observe my statutes and my judgments, this is what you can expect. Then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler of Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then this is the consequence. Folks, we cannot just read the good part and leave out the other parts. It all goes together to produce what we call the fear of God. He says then, verse 20, Then I will pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name. I will cast out of my sight and will make it to be a Proverbs and a byword among all the nations. And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And he shall answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. And they laid hold upon other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, all this he has brought upon them. Let me ask you a question. Can such a thing happen to a nation that God personally relates to? Well, it did. Could anything happen to a person that God personally relates to if the person doesn't want to serve God and begins to serve other things that God says don't serve and they serve them anyway? Can things happen to them? And our problem is that we pray Boy, we pray, we fast, and we pray, oh, and I'm just going to press in and get this, change their circumstance. You're not going to change the circumstance of somebody who is cursed. You may hit the nail on the head in a personal conversation, and you may show them what the nature of the problem is because you have made a decision to turn away from God. He's turned away from you. He even told Jeremiah once, he said, don't even pray for these people. 
If you do, he said, I think Jeremiah 11, he said, I won't even listen. You mean, God, that the tragedy and the awfulness has come upon some people, there's no remedy? You mean nothing can happen? Well, you know what I like in all of us? There seems to be in all Christians, because we know that God never changes. There's always that hope that you can have, that, you know, if I press in, God will do something. I can't just say, well, I'm done. I ain't going to pray no more for that one or this one or that one. Because there are people who just say, you know, I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to press in and I'm going to see if I can't do something about this or if God cannot use me. I don't want anybody in my lifetime to walk by me, my house, or my family and remember how they used to have such a good relationship with God. I don't want anybody one day to drive by here and look at this empty building and say, boy, they used to make a lot of good songs and they used to serve the Lord and they were so happy. Now they're all gone. I don't want that to ever happen. I don't want God in any way, any form to abandon me or you. I don't want to live like God. Don't abandon me. I'm secure and peaceful with the Lord. But I know I have a responsibility to live and make my calling and election sure. I have a responsibility to, to show like an epistle that's being read, Paul said, that my life should be read as an epistle, that I am a follower of Jesus. And look how he's blessing me. He'll bless you too. But folks, I think there are smoldering ruins in the religious world, especially in America, where God once moved and people started making some bad choices and it died. I doubt if some places and some things will ever again be resurrected. I think there's places where there was a body of believers that was once mighty and strong and fed hundreds of thousands. I think when it crashed and burned, I don't think it'll ever be resurrected. People are living, hoping it always oh, going to someday. So I doubt it will. I don't know that it will. I don't know that it won't. I don't know. There's somebody that might have that little spark of hope that they can press in and God put that in their heart and they press in and, and he'll do something. I don't know. I just know this, that, that the choice is ours. If we want to walk with God and have good favor and grace in our life, we live on his terms. And we have to want to learn what those terms are and seek his way and follow his way. That's what we have to do. Turn to 2 Chronicles 36. This is what happens. You talk about desolation. 36 verse 14. Moreover, all the chief of the priest and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. Now I know that these priests not only tolerated idol worship upon the high hills, people went to the hills 
to worship. They had the groves and where all these statues were, and you could pick out which gods you want to serve. I guess they worshiped the sun and the elements. That was good because there was a feeling. You could feel something. It's self-manifesting and feeling. And, you know, I just feel something here. I'm in touch with the energy of life, which is called God in this modern era. God is energy. And I just feel, I just feel so close to, to nature. Maybe Mother Earth, whatever her real name is. I just feel something here. Do you not think the devil gives stuff like that? You know, you bow before a stick of wood or a rock, and I guarantee you, you'll feel something oozy, something fluffy, sort of downy, featherish. Oh. Maybe it's a stained glass window. Maybe on the stained glass window, there's an old rugged cross, and the Drape over the cross was the garment of Jesus, and you're drawn to the picture, and there's something real oozy and downy feathery about it. Or maybe in the sanctuary there are statues. Ah, here's Joseph. Who was he? Ah, here was Mary, and she's holding the lamb. And then over here is James and John and... Matthew and Philip and all, you wouldn't know them if you saw them. But they're there like this. Listen, I'm telling you what religion does to people. You're drawn to that thing. You begin to associate with that statue or that picture on the wall. That Gentile Jesus. And you feel something. Ooh. And you come in here. We're not very religious, are we? You know, God never was painted. That Israel was not a nation of sculptures. The Greeks were. But he was, to the Greeks, he was just some babbler. He wasn't interesting. The Greeks weren't painters. Nobody ever painted a picture of Jesus. Who was Jesus? Who? Never heard of him. Remember that crowd out there and where... Oh, is he the one that's doing that? Yeah. That's why history doesn't have much about Jesus. Who was Jesus? I've said this a thousand times. When it came time to crucify Jesus, they had to bribe one of his guys to, which one is he? That, which one are we supposed to crucify? He wasn't anybody. But we've made something out of that so we can feel drawn to him in that realm. And all oh, the ooziness and the down featherishness of this Soft fluffiness, oh, feeling that you get. They get that and, oh, God, this is why I like to go to church and this is why I like the sculpture and the painted glass windows. And yet, God is called the invisible God. You can't see him. Where is he? What does he look like? How would you paint somebody who is everywhere at once? You go to the highest hill, he's there. You go to the lowest hill, he's there. Uh, there's nowhere he isn't. 
God is spirit. How do you paint spirit? Not a spirit. How do you paint spirit? How do you make a sculpture of God? That's when Israel began to fall apart and fall into decay. It's whenever the people said, we want a king. We want to be like these other people were around. We want somebody we can see. We don't want to follow the invisible God like Moses. We want somebody we can feel ooziness and down featherishness with. We want, we want this warmth feeling. And yet God didn't give them any of that. They turned away from him and he said, they have rejected me. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So he said, back to this. He said, verse 15, and the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, the prophets, rising up early and sending because he had compassion on his people, on his dwelling place. Let me ask you a question. God's people were about to be judged. They're turning away from God. They're worshiping idols. They're turning away from the one true God to following designs and ideas and opinions of man. Now, God knew if they keep doing this, I will have to judge them. So what does he do so he doesn't have to judge his people? He sends a prophet. Think of it. God takes no delight in judging his people. He has no delight in seeing wailing and grief and all that stuff come on people. That doesn't please God. He wants you to turn to him. Uh Uh-oh, you're turning away from me. You're about to be judged. So what does he do? He sends prophets. He sends a priest. He sends somebody. He sends somebody to his people with a message. Repent. Turn or burn or whatever they would say. You're doing evil. Stop it. That the prophet would cry out like that because the prophet obviously had no concern about his tomorrow. When God said to the prophet, go, he didn't tell him to come back. He just said, go, didn't he? I read this in a story the other night. He sent him, he said, go. He didn't say come back. He said, go. Oh, what was time out? You mean, yeah, go. What if I don't come back? I didn't tell you to come back. I told you to go. I don't know if I'm at a level of commitment yet. Well, then I need to get another prophet because some of them are. So he told him. Verse 16, you better read it. Let me read it. You follow it. You better listen to this one. But they mocked the messenger, the messengers of God, and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of God came against his people till there was no remedy. What does that mean? Is God long-suffering? Is there an end to how long he will deal with his people? Think of how many times us in this room that we have drug our feet and God still is good and kind and close and, and near and speaking to us and convicting. He hasn't let us go. He could have, but he didn't and he hadn't. He keeps tugging at us, keeps drawing us to him. But these people, these people have said they misuse his prophets. They despise the words that God sent. 
when the words rang out and the people heard the words, they said, I don't like that stuff. Ha, who's he talking to? Who does he think he is? And they mocked his prophets. Oh, <laughs> they mocked his prophets and they despised his words until the wrath of God came on those people until there was no remedy. Now, what I'm saying this morning, I don't want to major on the negative side, but you've got to see the negative side. Something will compel us to seek God. Something will compel us to arrest ourselves when we're going wrong and doing wrong until we're turning away from God. The theologian John Gill, in his commentary, said this about until there was no remedy. Gill was a good Calvinist. But anyway, he said, there was no reclaiming or recovering of them, no bringing them to repentance and no pardon for them. Let me ask you all a question. Could this happen to a nation? I remember reading in the various things I get in the mail and see on this or that way of reading things. A man said that in the nation of Japan, there had never been a revival, a lasting revival. I wonder, was there a time we don't know much about when somebody brought a message to them and they rejected it? You look at some of the Muslim countries. A book that uh, I'm reading at the present time. I didn't think I would, but I started it and now I'm want to finish it, I think. Talks about taking the gospel to countries in Africa. Somalia. Ruled by inhumane Muslims. People with no feelings. You know, you've probably read the story or heard the movie Black Hawk Down in 1993. It was over there. This fellow who wrote the book was there during that time. He just describes in the book all the different kinds of conditions that as a missionary, he went there with a missionary's heart that he's going to affect some lives and turn some things around and realized when he got there that he couldn't. Oh, I think any man of God, well, at a prayer meeting one time with three of the Mogadishians who were Christians and in what, just a few days, they were all three dead. We don't want Jesus. We don't want anything to do with Christianity. Not there, not very much in America. Certainly not in schools and government places. Our nation is being run by heathens, or we'd say in the mountains, by heathens. They tried to take him out of everything because they want to get rid of guilt. Or the communist countries. They tried to warp the minds of all the children so that God is just a, a figment of somebody's imagination, just a made-up figure. It's not real. Because you can rule people that don't have any relationship with God. They're easy to rule because nothing has any meaning. You think of it. Without God, there is no reason for morals, scruples, kindness, gentleness, or anything. Because we base all of that on something. There is a moral code that God embeds in the hearts of his people, or just people, that we know to be nice and kind and not do this and not do that. We used to be like that in America. Now it's getting more rude, more unthankful, more unholy, more indifferent, more conceited, more heady, more... It's the last days 
We don't want anything about the Ten Commandments. Well, the Ten Commandments won't save anybody. The Ten Commandments just declares that you're sinners, all of you. But it has to do with God in some way. It keeps attention on God. No more prayers in school. No more Bibles in the schoolroom. Get Bibles out of hotels. You know, wherever you can. You can't smoke anymore. You can't drink a a 64-ounce gullet because you... Who's telling us everything we ought to do with our lives? We're living in a time in which everything is beginning to break up. I hope you realize this. That things are beginning to disintegrate on the foundation. Because if the foundations are destroyed, what will the people do, the Bible says? And there are nations, I believe, that have at some point in their time, especially Africa. When I was a boy, Africa was a place everybody went for the long vacations, for the comfort and the joy. Now you go to Africa and it's just, I think of Rwanda where people were killed and slaughtered by tribal warfare. There's no regard for human life. No regard for if you live or die. I remember a movie clip. And the army is these rebels walking through a street, and this fellow couldn't get out of the way of them fast enough. He kind of bumped into one. And he just shot him. He killed him right there. I mean, bam! Hammer dead right there on the street. No regard. No God. No hope. No grace. Nothing. Would they bury him? I don't know. One story, a lady over there was scraping a little hole in the dirt with a spoon or a stick or something she could find, just trying to dig it deep enough to lay her baby in so she could put some rocks over it and bury her child. Who cares? Nobody cares about that baby or you. Walking down the street one day, there's a woman starving to death on the sidewalk, nursing a baby. The man walked by and he smiled, and she smiled back. He went down to the market, got his groceries, and he came back to check on her. The baby was crying, and he said something to her, and she was dead. Who cares? She has no family, no friends. All of her kids have probably been killed or died. Who cares? Now, I've tried to paint a picture of desolation. I might have done it. I mean, I'm talking about an environment in which... There is no feelings. There's no God. This is almost like God has abandoned the whole thing. I'm glad for the missionary zeal. I do. God is raising up folks today who are willing to dedicate their life to go. Not thinking about coming back, but just going. And they probably, a lot of them, go into places where there's judgment on the land. And you're going to frustrate yourself being there. You've prepared. Yes, you've fasted. You've prayed. You've spent money. You've got a support group back. Yes, 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 yes. And a thousand more yeses. But there's a real good chance where you're going. Like Paris Reedhead, the one who preached the sermon, 10 shekels in a shirt. He was a missionary to Africa. He finally quit and he came back. He said, these people don't want to repent. Muslims don't want to turn to Jesus. He was somewhere else. And he said, these people love their sins. 
They found a way they want to live. And you can talk about your way all you want to. They don't want your way. They'll take your money and your gifts and all your food and medicine. Bring all you can. We want that. But we don't want anything to do with your God. And he said, I'm done. If I'm here just to try to make you feel better and I can't get the gospel in any of you, I'm wasting my time being here. Oh, you're sowing seed, brother. I've sowed seed, he said, for several years. Who cares? Not a thing said changes anybody. You know why I believe? Because I believe there is an abandonment of God on situations like that. You say, well, I don't believe it. Well, then you go. I've never been. I cannot speak from firsthand experience. I'm left to reading what you wrote. But I'm just saying that when I read the Bible about how God has dealt with all these people through the years and the things that have happened to people and the awful stuff that's happened and how nothing gets changed and nations that once existed, the Amorites, the Pezurites, and all these ites and icks and ticks, they so gravely turned away from God, they no longer exist. Was there any remedy for them? No. What makes us think then that, oh, that could never happen to us? God is fair and God is just. I tell myself, you who stand, you take heed lest you fall. Because the same weaknesses that others have been vulnerable to in centuries as you read in the Bible, you're no different than they are. The same devil that was tempting people then, an ageless devil then, he's still here today tempting us. He tempted our ancestors from eons ago, and he's here tempting us. He knows the way of people. And God has said, you seek me, you'll find me. When you find me and you draw nigh to me, then you'll resist the devil. And you know what? The devil will flee from you and your family. And your home. And Deuteronomy 4 says, And it shall be well with you and your children forever. I want that. I don't want to live in desolation. I don't want to see things fall apart. Turn to Proverbs 1. Let me tell you why evil and desolation comes. Look at verse 24 and 25. This is where it starts whether it's on a personal level, a church level, or a national level. This is where we start. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But you have said it not all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Now, I believe being fair to the text, that this is what wisdom is saying. See, the wisdom of God is direction from God. Wisdom is what to do, how to do it, what way to do it. And God, in showing us how to live, how to relate, how to anything, he says it's a way directed by wisdom. Now, in that sense, it's still directed by the Lord. But he said, I've called, and you wouldn't listen. You refused. You wouldn't regard, verse 25, you said it not all my counsel. Christians do it all the time. Church folks do. You can tell they do by the way they live. So here's what happens. This is the consequence of your choices. 
Verse 26, I also will laugh at your calamity. I won't do anything about it. Whoo! I will mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. Oh my goodness. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not of my counsel. They despise all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them. And the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoever hearkens unto me, this is a promise, shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. Is that a promise? Now, you see here, you got two choices here. You got those who say to the Lord, I don't want to all that stuff. You know people, some, some friends you've had or had, or people you know. Uh, they don't go to church, haven't been to church in years. Not interested, don't want any part of it. Read it. They live, they exist. And they cry, they don't get any answers. Well, I prayed, I didn't get anything. No, you probably wouldn't. God said you wouldn't. Whew. But he says, whoever, and what's that last verse say? But whoever will what? Whoever will listen and pay attention to what I'm saying, he will dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. Now, back in 2 Chronicles 15, here's what happened. The prophet came, spoke to Asa. And this is what Asa did. This was Asa's response to the prophet, verse 8, And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and he put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin and of all the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim. And he renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all the people together to do one thing, verse 12, verse 12, verse 12. This is the only way it'll ever work right for us. Verse 12. He said, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord. It's in your Bible. There's been no sin. They haven't done anything wrong. They, the prophet just came by and he told him, he said, he said, look, if you walk with the Lord, he'll walk with you. You forsake him, he'll forsake you. Now, as you read back in your history, there was a time that they didn't do anything. But, you know, when they did seek the Lord, they heard him. And Asa said, then we're going to seek the Lord. He said, we're going to take courage. And in verse 12, he said, and they, the nation, entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And they did it legally. Anybody won't do this, we're going to shoot them. No, he said that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. I'm sure a lot of people acted like they were seeking God, but who weren't? Because if you didn't at least act like you were seeking God, you'd die. But anyway, verse 14, And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, 
for they had sworn with all their hearts and sought with their whole desire. And he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest about. Why did he do that? Why did God give them rest all about? Because they sought him. They turned their hearts to him and said, oh, God. Probably this. We don't know a whole lot about you. We've heard historical victories you gave us. But as far as our relationship with you and loving you and loving your people, Lord, help us and teach us. And when they begin doing that, we get verse 19. 20 years. Maybe the longest stretch of peace any king had in the Old Testament. Maybe. 20 years of rest and peace. Isn't that good? 20 years, folks. 20 years of peace. We're not always expecting the other shoe to drop. Now what next? You know, you know we're Christians. Things are supposed to go wrong for us. Uh-uh. Didn't hear. It was well with them, wasn't it? 20 years. The people sought the Lord. 20 years. I would imagine after 20 years, they kind of got used to it. Because it says in verse 16, and a king up in Israel, Baasha, he came down to invade Asa. And he built him a fortress at Ramah, where he could come and go. He's going to defeat Asa and all of his people. And Asa was scared. Asa, 20 years later, 20 years later, maybe he got fat and lazy. I don't know. 20 years of peace, and all of a sudden the king says, I'm going to come and put a whooping on you, Asa. And Asa said, oh, no. So what did Asa do? He went out and began to bribe him, got all of his gold and said, don't, don't, don't hurt us. Would you say it's time for another visit from a prophet? But he wouldn't be smiling, would he? And at that time in Asa's life, a prophet came. Prophet came to Asa and he said to Asa, verse 7, and at that time Haniah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a large host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you did rely on the Lord, he helped deliver them from your hand. Asa. Asa said, well, that was 20 years ago. Oh. Verse 9, for the eyes of the Lord, Asa. He's still, prophet's still talking. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, Asa, seeking those whose hearts are perfect toward him, so that he can show his strength in that person. He doesn't care how many enemies they have or what the odds are. It doesn't matter. If God is for you, who can be against you? Asa, what's the matter with you? How could you have been so marvelous in battle, so blessed and so spiritual, and God just... Covered you for 20 years with peace and joy to now cower before this blabbing mouth king of the north. I don't think he's called him a blabbing mouth. Oh, Baasa. That's not blabbing. That's Baasa. 
You know what Asa did then? He didn't take courage in. He was wroth with that seer. Haniah, who do you think you are? And he put him in jail. Fed him bread and water. You know what happened next to Asa? Refinish the chapter. Look at the last part of it. In the 20 and ninth year of his reign, he was diseased in his feet. He didn't have to be. I don't think he should have been. But he was because he let down the hedge. He made a bad choice. And the Bible says his disease was great, yet in his disease he sought not to God. What happened to Asa? But he sought to the physicians. And he died later. And the Bible says he died in the 40th year of his reign. What I want to say this morning is this about your choices. We all have a choice as to what we're going to do. Whether you will go to church, stay home, read your Bible, close it. Stop doing things you shouldn't do or continue doing things. Gossip or not. I mean, you have a choice. It's your life. I mean, we can read. There's so much, so much, much more than what we've covered. Just, I mean, I'm just read in Second Chronicles mainly. And we get a picture not only of man's weakness and man's downfall, but a gracious God who can raise him up and lift him up. But if he doesn't want to be lifted up and he is determined to go his own way, then he can go his own way without remedy. And I think it's happened historically to nations. When my hair was brown, I went to Tasmania. It's the island south of Australia. And I spoke there. And on the airplane ride from Melbourne down to Tasmania, the guy I was riding with said, you know, they say, you know, mate. And we were talking about the trip. He said, there's never been a revival in Tasmania. And he said, I don't know if it's true, but he said, Smith Wigglesworth went to Tasmania once, and he said it was the hardest place he had ever seen to preach. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I only gave my testimony there. But if that's true, if something like that's true, if nations that have been overwhelmed by false religions like Islam or if they have no religion at all, like in Africa, just killing, or the Sudan and the Muslim, it is squalor and awful over there. I think somewhere a long time ago, the gospel was preached. I do. I can't prove it. I'm sure historically, if we do some research, we could find it, that God sent missionaries there, living stone for one in Africa years ago who discovered this, and they were preachers, mighty preachers from South Africa all the way up to the top. Christian movements. The apostles were in North Africa. And yet, there has been such a decline that things have fallen into such disarray that it appears there's no remedy. Even the missionary finally said, you know, I got to get out of here. I, of course, reading about it, I thought, you know, I would agree with you. I question whether or not God would really send a man into a situation like that unless he wanted to do a work in a man and not necessarily the people there. But who knows when you sow seed who didn't get something? But I think when a people, a missionary, and bless their heart, they're the most dedicated people in the world. 
they go. Not coming back, but they go. They get to come back, usually. But they go for one reason, to be used of God to spread the gospel. And I don't know what it would be like to not be able to spread the gospel. But we're probably going to get used to it in America. You're probably going to get used to it. I think the two things that America hates is Jesus Christ and guns. I think they hate both of them. The gun part is, (laughs) who cares? The God part, you should care. Amen. But the question is, you, you and me, stand here today as we leave to get ready to go home, take the communion. What about us? Are the choices I'm making this morning, today, yesterday, the choices I'm intent on making tomorrow, will they bring God's pleasure into my life? Can I expect peace and joy in my life? Can I expect to be led by, what did he say? He leadeth me where? Still waters and the green pastures. And he does what? He restoreth my soul. Can I expect that to be a reality? Then what in the world brings it to pass? Teach me that. Teach me the way wherein I should walk. I think there's a song we sing that. Teach me to do thy will. God, show me how I live so that... All is well in my life. And when the enemy comes in, and he will, like a flood, God will raise up on my behalf a standard against him. And in the end, I shall prevail. So be it. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks this morning for your goodness, your love, and your grace, and your mercy. I thank you this morning that there are those sitting before me whose hearts are being dealt with. Their resolve is being tempered. That your strength is finding its way into their life and into their wills. Now I ask that you would give them the one supreme need is wisdom, direction. Everybody. School. Children, marriage, tomorrow, everything that we're going to do. Lord, we want to have good success. I stand before these who are your people, those that are watching. We confess that you are our God. There is no other God. You are the great meter of all of our needs the great supplier. We have many. And this day we ask you to open a door in our hearts so that the entrance of all those needs can be met abundantly. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.